0: Jennifer Frazier is author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. She has a PhD in comparative literature and The Bullied Brain is her fourth book. She draws on medical, neuroscientific and neurobiological research to examine what happens to brains that are bullied and abused. Jennifer is an award-winning educator and works as a coach, consultant and international presenter. This podcast is a dialogue that works in the first season like a coaching session. Eric shares his childhood experiences of being abused and Jennifer discusses the implications for brain and for recovery. Our goal is to use Eric's childhood abuse like a case study as most people don't learn about their brains or about how abuse impacts their brains. The research is clear that the brain is innately wired to repair and recover when we know the harm done and the evidence-based practices to heal. This is the focus of Jennifer's book, but it comes to life in a podcast as Eric bravely walks us through the abuse done to him and his many strategies for healing his neurological scars. For all those who have suffered bullying, abuse, and trauma, join us to look at it through the lens of brain science and learn ways to repair the harm done. So before I hit record, you you had mentioned that some of the changes I've been seeing with my son and, and just in general are because of the maturing brain the age 24 like magic switch goes off with the prefrontal cortex or what have you and i was a little dismissive i kind of glossed right over it and went right you know jumped right in like like i think many of us are, are apt to do in conversations we're eager to get our stuff out and not so eager to actually listen not just hear what, what somebody else has to say and and you know, I have a, an expert figuratively in front of me here on Zoom to, to be so dismissive. You're right to call on me, call me out on it. And I know you said you're just giving me a hard time, but I wouldn't be so quick to back down either, Jennifer, because I, I think, at least for me, I need somebody to challenge me because if, if I feel like I can walk all over you, I'm probably going to. I mean, not so much as I did in my early, in my early days, but wrong or right, I place a lot of value in, does this person have enough? Strength, not the right word, but to stand up to me. And, That's and, really interesting.
1: I, I never, I don't think of other people in that regard, but I'm not a great listener. I get all excited about what I want to talk about. And and I don't necessarily listen closely to what the other person's saying. And I think especially when we're talking about our own children, yes, we have a tendency to do that because we know them so well. And we've heard so many different opinions and judgments and diagnoses and and we've had to battle for them and to and we know them inside out from the day they were born until now so that's one of the guaranteed areas where you can't hear someone going oh maybe it's this or i bet it's that because you've heard it too many times and plus the other thing i think too is we're quick to dis dismiss the brain because our society dismisses the brain it's like oh it can't be that Because I've never heard of that before. Nobody talks about it. The doctor never mentioned it. No one's looked at his brain. You know what I mean? Like, why why would you suddenly stop and go, that's interesting. Yeah, I need to know more about the maturing human brain. Like, we don't have those. We don't even have that vocabulary.
0: As a general population, I would agree. But I've read your book. We've been having this. This is our fifth recording now. I would like to think I'm a little more curious. And by nature, I'm a curious person. But I think the first part of what you said, that really resonated with me. Like I get very defensive when it comes to William and to the point where I am very good at making sure he never comes up in conversation. You know, I, I don't want people talking about him. You know, I, I'm i just I have no interest in, in anything that they have to say. I even did that in my last newsletter when I sent my when I sent my April newsletter and I shared about how he had been brought home by the police. And, you know, at the bottom of my newsletter, I said, all you, you, know, for and I don't remember the exact words, but words to the effect of all you well-meaning people. I don't need any feedback. I don't need any advice, and I don't want any advice. So I just spelled it out right there in the beginning. You know, kind of shut people down without being mean, and that's just kind of my go-to. But it, it's it's one thing to do that for somebody who has no background or no clue, but for you know, you've got a lot of extensive knowledge, you know, and. Caveat, caveat. You're not a therapist or a psychologist or anything like that, but you do. You've been doing all this research and study on neurology and neurochemistry and and all this other stuff. So I should not be so quick to just be pusha. Huh? I mean, that wasn't the noise I made, but you, you, you know.
1: <laughs> you know, it was really interesting what you said, also before we pressed record, which was that you noticed in yourself. Right around that time, 25, you noticed a change in your behavior and how you are acting. And I think it's useful information for people to know that in their own lives, reflect back to that 24, 25 moment. And then also with children, or if you're a teacher or a coach, think of your, your young adults in your life, and especially teenagers, and understand that their brains aren't mature. They don't get the fully mature prefrontal cortex until they're around 24, 25. And the prefrontal cortex is the, you can call it the adult part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that, they call it the CEO of the brain. It's the part of the brain that thinks about consequences. It's really rational and reasonable. It listens to the emotional energy in the brain. It listens to you know all the different components of the brain, the threat detection system. It weighs out what it's saying. It listens to the emotions, but then it starts to think about it and it goes, hmm, well, we could act in this impulsive way, or I recognize that we're feeling a whole lot of emotion right now. But if we did this particular act, or we said this particular thing, it might not be good in the future. Now, the teenage and the young 20 something brain doesn't have that it does what it wants. It's very impulsive. They describe the adolescent brain as neuroscientists describe the adolescent brain as having like a a race car gas pedal. It can go from zero to 60 in 0.003 seconds. So a, a NASCAR race pedal for gas and the brakes of a bicycle. So it doesn't, the, it's the CEO of the brain. It's the prefrontal cortex that puts on the brakes and goes, just a second here. Let's think about this.
0: And, and that fits, right? Because I've shared with you some of my violent tendencies when I was younger. And they carried over to my first boat, you know, through through A school into my first boat. I didn't have any incidents in A school that I remember. But on on when I in C school, A school and C school are just Navy terminology for introduction to your your job and then advanced training for your job. You know, and then when I got to my first boat, you know, I would be, I still got triggered. And I get triggered now. And it goes back to what we talked about last time, last last episode where I was saying, or you called you you didn't call me out. You you pointed out I tend to over I tend to Overcorrect or overstate, or I don't remember the exact language you used, and then and that it's a lot of that is because of what happened with what how I was acting when I was younger, and not sure how to tie this tie a bow on this. It's, it's I mean I was going somewhere with this, and it's just I'm not sure where I went. Like for me, and we we've talked ad nauseum about you know my mom my my parents in the the childhood. You know, and I'm, I I don't need to go any deeper into that. I think I think listeners have an idea, a fair idea. It was probably not the best environment for conducive to a healthy, you know, childhood. But that, that anger, that quick to fire off, and that's never gone away. I still have, I can still get fired up very quickly. The difference is the intensity level. So I used to go from zero to white hot rage in, you know, zero, just, I mean, you could literally flip a switch. I couldn't tell you why all the time. There have been a couple instances where I attacked somebody and I'm like, what the was that all about? And it was probably something stupid. You know, I mean, it's always something stupid, but (laughs) you're saying no. Why? I'm saying no. Okay. I have to tell you a few brain things that I've
1: learned about that are highly relevant to this. So first of all, we are trained to think that something out in the environment triggers our reaction. And that's, neuroscientists now know that that's not true. What actually happens is our brain gets wired by how we're raised and the culture that we're in, schools, sports, but really the family in many, many ways, formative years, our brain gets wired to predict reality. So when you, your brain has already figured out that the person is a threat before you attack them. So for you, it feels like zero to white hot, but your brain's always a step ahead of you. Now, what's really interesting is the brain has a mechanism for correction. It's extremely good at correcting an incorrect prediction. So the classic example, I'm sure we've talked about it before. You and I are walking down a path. You come from an extremely violent household where anything and everything is used to hit you as a kid. And I came from a household where that didn't happen. My parents never struck me. Okay. So we're walking down a path together and we see a snake. Both of us, by the time we consciously say to ourselves, there's a snake on the path, we're gonna have to do something about this, we're in danger, our brain already saw the snake. It's got that data and it's making decisions about what to do that are unconscious. So it's preparing to fight it, it's gonna fight the snake, kill it, or it's gonna run away as fast as it can, or it's gonna just freeze like a rabbit and hope that the snake doesn't see it. That's its options, that's a sympathetic stress response and it's on fire. And so all of a sudden, I correct my brain. Corrects and says, "Hey, <laughs> that's not a snake; it's a stick." Your brain is too traumatized. It's been hit by too many things, including, say, sticks. It can't correct, so it just goes into fight. The other thing is, you're you're quick to blame yourself. So you say, "Oh, you know, why do I fight something stupid?" Probably not. From a brain point of view, what probably happened was. The part of your brain that records trauma is non-narrative and non-language it because it doesn't the brain doesn't have time for language and narrative and let's organize a history here and all of that stuff goes out the window when you're under threat which you would have been multiple times as a child so you don't remember your childhood probably or the traumatizing moments in your childhood in in any form other than fragment and fragmented forms are in the central part of the brain if you can call it, you, the brain works always as a huge network, but we talk about parts of the brain just for the sake of layman being able to talk about it. So just with that caveat out of, out of place. So chances are what happened is some kind of sensual data. It can be a smell, you know, think of guys coming back with PTSD, a bright light will push them into the PTSD. It's not something stupid. It's not their fault. They get, they, the brain is predicting danger. A big loud sound, the brain predicts that's a bomb. Oh no, it wasn't. It was a car firing or a truck. But the brain it remembers these fragments to keep you alive. But it's not attached to language. It's not attached to narrative and history. And it it can come up when you're least expecting it.
0: Yeah, and that that fragmented piece. I think we proved that on the first or second second episode when you asked me to talk about, and I gave you the memories as best I could. But it was it was really like picking a puzzle piece out of the box and trying to put a puzzle together. You know, there was no there was no real rhyme or reason to it. And even since then, looking back, I'm like I still can't create like a emotion motion picture, if you will. Not that I necessarily want to, but <laughs> no, that thank you. I just, but again, there's that overcompensation, right? Like I don't like who I was. I don't like who I was back then. Part of the problem that I have with myself back then was how much I lied. It was like easier to tell a lie than it was to tell the truth, and it was. I don't know if you've lied, but when you when the way it felt to me is it got to a point where like I didn't even know myself anymore. Like, who am I? Because I'm just I'm, I'm just trying to create all these narratives to just be left alone. I mean, it wasn't even like I was trying to fit in. I just wanted to be left alone in, in high school anyway. And then in Navy, I wanted to fit in and try. I I'd try to find my place, you know, and didn't really know how and, until I started getting really good at my job. You know, and then I then I I had something else to fall back on. But, you know, again, when we look at the age, I was 17 when I enlisted. Three days after I turned 18, I was in boot camp. I was in school from the ages of 18 to either boot camp or school, 18 to 20, 19 and a half, 20. I was probably in school for the Navy. Even then, I didn't do really well there i didn't take it that seriously i didn't take anything that seriously at that age it was just like yeah whatever and then you know the impulse control when i was in a school in san diego i was a loan shark i wasn't breaking people's kneecaps but i would lend you 100 dollars this payday for 150 dollars next payday and we didn't have to get violent because there was three or four of us that would would do that and but if if anybody stiffed one of us they weren't getting money from any of us mm-hmm. So it was it was kind of understood. We, none of us had resort to violence and or anything like that. But I was making a good side business. Not that caveat, caveat, I don't encourage anybody to do this. But it, I mean, it, it shows lack of impulse control, right? Because the me now is like, what the hell were you thinking? I mean, one, it's illegal. Two, you're in the Navy on a military base doing this. I, how many different things did I break there? And three, these are supposed to be fellow service members. You know, are you really honoring that unspoken code of serving together. I mean, this is all reasoned Eric, 47 gonna be 48 this year, right? 49 this year, 48 gonna be 49. Looking back on what 18, 19 year old Eric did, right? 18, what 18 year old Eric did. And it's that impulse control, right? I mean, I didn't drink until I joined the Navy and got to San Diego and drinking age was 18. So I was kind of a rule follower. I didn't really want to break. But if you're going to let me drink, I'm going to drink. Didn't really have any friends to hang out with, per se, because I didn't know how to make friends. And I didn't know if I wanted friends. I, You know, I didn't. I mean, that just so I would read, drink. I think there might have been one or two people I hung around with. But and I didn't I can tell you what I didn't do. I didn't focus on school because I didn't again that that immature brain were like, this is my career. You know, it's not like high school, which. I still don't think means anything. I think it's kind of a worthless four years of your life. But this was my career. This was training me to do my job in the Navy for the next, you know, assuming I didn't reenlist, six years. So it was really shaping. You could have a good life for six years. You could have a really crappy life for six years because you don't know what you're doing. But I didn't think about that back then, right? So I'm I'm saying all this because I think it highlights that that impulse control, the immaturity you know things like that i'll i'll pause there just to get your thoughts it's
1: so i read that very differently again i read it from you have to you have to understand the wiring of the brain part of it so your brain has been wired to believe that no matter how smart you are how good you are how hard you work how kind you are how honest you are no, there's no there's no point you are always going to be attacked abused humiliated and hurt So your brain is not wired to believe in any of those things. And in the research, they refer to it as growth mindset. If young people, regardless of whatever innate talent or strength they might have, if young people are taught that effort will be rewarded, they will work and work and work. They will problem solve. They will never give up. They will give it their best shot. They'll pick up the pieces and start all over again. Whereas kids that are told that they're super smart and just given everything, they don't know how to work and they don't correlate hard work with success, commitment with success, overcoming failures and barriers with success. They're missing that piece because they they were given everything on a silver platter and they were always told that they were special and they were brilliant. So this is why you don't praise kids that way. And this is why you allow them to have all kinds of reasonable challenges in their life. The kids that are taught that they're, that people really see their effort, they see how hard they're working and they they know that it will get them to their, you know, to fulfill their dreams one day. Those are the kids that have growth mindset and they're unstoppable. So it's this whole concept, again, this is in the research, that talent is not born, it's grown. And one of the key ways to grow talent is to have an empathic coach. You never had that, right? You you had abusive coaching from an early age it's all you knew and it's yes. really a shame you they you didn't get like a sport coach or a teacher who who could step in oftentimes that's what saves kids oh i hated
0: to- sports i didn't want anything to do with sports i yeah. would fake injuries to get out of gym class yeah, yeah i didn't like sports at all and then When you my first boat, it was more of the same with with regards to toxic leadership. I mean, it just, you know, but like we had talked about last episode or or a couple of whatever about mentors, right? I didn't really have one on my first boat. And that was really where I was trying to figure out who I was. and, And the great thing about the Navy for me was the changing duty stations every three or four years and getting to re- reinvent myself yeah you know, because again i got to the boat and they give you seven or eight months to qualify to your and earn your dolphins and which is really important in submarines because it shows that you know how to save the ship and save the 130 people on the boat and i didn't i didn't take death seriously, right i was what they call dink to qualify you know, and and which, again, reinforces a negative behavior, you know, negative reinforcement because you're delinquent. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So there's a lot of negative reinforcement there. The, the funny thing to me is to this day, I qualified submarines in 1990, 94, maybe 90, 93. I can still draw like the power plant, the nuclear power plant, the ventilation, the, the electric mimic bus. I can still draw it. <laughs> Because that's how much of an impact, you know, when I did decide to take it seriously. And then I got rewarded because, again, later boats, later, later as I made rank, I was, people would be sent to me to do checkout qualifications. I would do the check to make sure they knew what they were talking about. And, you know, would I be willing to listen? So I was craving. I wanted the responsibility maybe. I wanted the the additional responsibility. Like I wanted to qualify break for dive. So I would go around and make sure things were certified and safe when we submerge. Right? And then an officer would second check you. But you, it's a very important job. I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to sign up other people's qual cards. But I didn't necessarily want to do all the work to get to the place where I, where I, had, where I was able to. And, and it's changed over the years. Obviously, look what I'm doing now it's very it has changed a lot but it's it's because I think because I when I when I finally decided to start working at first it was only because the sooner I get the work done the sooner I can go home and then you know how can I be more efficient and I've, I've always had that engineer brain of problem solving you know connect A to B. And I, you know, according to the ASVAB, I had an aptitude for electronics and things like that, but it was only until I started taking that seriously. And that I could start, you know, then you start getting positive reinforcement and stuff. And and now, and, and then again, it was too late for my career on the first boat, because, you know, when you're in, my belief is when you're in a work environment, people get to know you as that person. And it's really hard to change that image no matter what you do, the difference with with the navy is people rotate out. So eventually, the crew will change. If you stay there long enough, all of the crew will have changed out. They won't know you for who you were. But if you leave and you go somewhere new, hey, who are you? You know, I mean, it's a small community, but it's still almost like an unspoken rule that you're, you know, if if you do come across somebody on the boat, they're going to give you a new chance, regardless of who you were on in the past. So yeah, I, again, I don't. I feel like I'm a little disjointed today, but I don't get to talk about this very often or ever. So it's it's kind of cathartic.
1: Well, I mean, a disjointed piece goes back to you're trying to construct history because you your history abilities, your narrative, your the movie of yourself in your mind kind of got taken away from you, got derailed when you were young. So you've had to learn by yourself how to create that. And so every time you do something like this, where you talk about it, you're reinforcing your own history to yourself. And it's nice to, it's nice to have someone hear it and be able to reflect back. So, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense that it, it is cathartic, right? It feels, it feels good to start to put kind of pattern and structure and reflection. Like what you're doing that's the healthiest thing in the world is the gift of the human brain is that you're able to think about your thoughts. You're able to think about yourself it's like metacognition, right? You're looking back and going, when I acted this way, I don't know, it's not who I am now. I never would do that. I've I've got a lot of ethical issues and even compassion issues where, you know, I was supposed to be connecting with my team and I actually was manipulating. I wasn't, I wasn't showing that I cared about them. Now think about that though. Like how would you even, like you said yourself at one point, how would you even know how to do that? You didn't know how to make friends. You didn't know how to care for other people. You didn't know how to show compassion. You didn't know how to show ethics or understand what's good, what's bad. It was all totally scrambled for you by being in a highly abusive parenting situation. All that learning you
0: didn't learn. So you had to learn it by yourself. That's right. I I mean, I want to clarify, I did have friends in high school and I had people in friends in the Navy. It wasn't like I was, you know, totally isolated forever. I wasn't. I don't think I was the best type of friend. Does that make sense?
1: Of course. Yeah. You were just learning, right? You can't, you can't be the best at something if you're just learning. And you know, another thing about the brain is that people forget the brain learns, unfortunately for all of us, the brain learns by making mistakes. And if you don't put yourself out there and you don't try to learn how to make friends on your own, cause you have really no idea. You have no natural attachment, which is the key thing that you're supposed to get from your parents you don't even have that. So you, you know, you're starting behind the eight ball, it's going to be hard for you. But I mean, it's you have total growth mindset, though. It's really interesting that you that's like one of your, you know, if we go back to who's the real Eric, separate from the abuse, you know, there's the bicycle riding, there's the library. And now we can add your natural curious, like super curious, photographic memory, intellectually, like curious, and and psychologically curious and you have growth mindset or you wouldn't, you wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't put in any energy and time. You'd just watch TV or something. This is hard work. This Mm -hmm. is mentally hard work.
0: Yes. when I get done with these calls. It's exhausting.
1: (laughs) I know know. it totally is. There's something that I wanted to say about that career wise and getting the second chance. And I I think that's a great thing about the Navy actually, because especially when you start really young, None of us remain the same, or most of us don't remain the same as our 18 year old selves. And to be able to get a new, fresh start is pretty nice. And you know, in your 20s, and and then again later 20s, like that's I think that's a really great pattern.
0: Yeah, and I I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd grown up. I wish I'd I wish I was who I am now back then. Because I I look at all the things I I miss. So I'm pausing because I'm trying to think how to frame this right. So. My curiosity manifested itself at work, but not with interpersonal relationships. When I got to my second boat, I qualified just about every single watch station you could qualify on a submarine in the forward compartment. So I was standing sonar watches. my, My job was interior communications electrician, electronics technician, which meant I was responsible for monitoring atmospheres, maintaining navigation equipment, things like that. But I would, I qualified on to be a basic sonar operator. So I was sitting on what they call the stacks, listening to passive sonar, identifying, you know, trawlers or or whatever, based on, you know, screw count, things like that, you know, all by sound, right? So I went through that qualification. I qualified as the exhilarment of the watch, which is machinist me, which is a mechanical one where they're, you know you're doing, the, it, it's like the mechanical version of what I was doing for electricity. I'm trying to simplify it for, for, you know, people who have never been in the Navy or whatever. And that's nobody, you typically people who are not assigned to those roles don't typically qualify those, but I was bored. I wanted to learn more. I was curious, but once I mastered it, I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I did. I mean, that's, and that's still the same today. Like once I've and and I don't, master's too strong a word. Once I've learned it and it no longer interests me, I'm I'm ready to move on to the next thing. And again, the Navy is really good for that because it, it, it took me time to qualify all those watch stations. It wasn't like I just flipped the switch and qualified. You know, it took me three, the th- I was there for three or four years. I qualified chief for the watch, which is, it's a really intense duty. It's a really intense watch station. You are pretty much in charge of everything for maintaining the boat. You're underwater. So if you can think of a submarine moving through the water, you you have to maintain neutral buoyancy. So you're not going up and you're not going down. The way you do that is by moving water around in different tanks, pumping it in, pumping it out. But if if you're bringing on water, because let's say you're making potable water for us to drink, well, you have to take water out to compensate for that, right? If you're... Getting rid of sanitaries, if you're getting rid of wastewater, would well, now you have to compensate for that. If you're getting rid of trash, well, you know, to flush the trash out, it takes you know several thousands of gallons of water. Well, you have to maintain, you know, find a way to do that. If you're at periscope depth, then you have to maintain yourself so you don't broach. And all that's done by the, the diving officer of the watch who tells the chief of the watch how much water to move and when. And so the chief and then the chief of the watch is also monitoring all kinds of other gauges so you've got you know you've got a lot going on potentially you know and that was that so chief of the watch and diving officer of the watch are like the epitome of enlisted qualifications you know and i I qualified chief of the watch i never qualified dive and, and i you know but so all my curiosity went towards that but toward but with regards to forming meaningful relationships i had very surface relationships with people i would i would shoot the breeze and you know, have, have conversations. But to this day, I'm on a couple, I'm on a couple of Facebook groups for the boats I've been on. And I don't, I don't, I don't have the right words. Cause I was going to say, I don't understand, but I think academically, I understand. I don't feel the same way. So many people do about, Oh, I I miss the, you know, I miss the animal boat is what, what they is, is the slang for the the submarine I was on the first submarine I was on. I was on the Albuquerque. It's not like it's a, a state secret. It's just I was on the Albuquerque, the Annapolis, I commissioned in Virginia, and then I left and went to Theodore Roosevelt, which is an aircraft carrier. But I don't have that same draw. I don't identify that way, right? But yet, and this has been proven, I can still pick up the phone and talk to somebody I haven't talked to in six years that I served with, and it's like no, no time has gone by. But I'm that way with other people, too. It's not a military thing. It's just for me, if you haven't done anything for me to write you out of my life, why would I write you out of my life? It's, it's, but it's not because I served with you. It's just because logically, I mean, you know, I have a, I have a, I have my best man was a woman. I haven't talked to her in years, but if if she were to call me and say she needs help, I'd be there, you know? So again, I'm not really sure where I'm going with all this. I think it's more to show that I feel like I took work very very seriously and i wanted to invest everything into it but i didn't really and i still don't necessarily look at person interpersonal relationships the same way does that make sense am i am i communicating it right I, i'm
1: <laughs> no, <I laughs> i've would never just,
0: talked about this so i'm just trying to you know
1: no it's it's a part of so on the one hand what i hear is you're very cerebral you're not a yeah you're a very cerebral person you kind of were from the get-go regardless you even sort of processed the abuse being done to you in a very cerebral way where you kind of were quite analytic about it which would make sense when you talk about your very your mind is very mechanical very engineering oriented very cause and effect and you know other people have deeply emotional brains right we all have every single brain is unique that's the fascinating thing about it they're all unique from like your fingerprints and then on top of that we all get scripted or wired in different ways by our experiences but then also by what we practice on the flip side what I hear is that you despite not having any learning as a child about real attachment or care or connection you developed it on your own terms you know and you never pretend like you don't pretend oh i'm really nostalgic oh the military days were the best days of my life like you never do that like which is very much the opposite of how back in the day you felt like you had to lie to fit in you had to lie to protect yourself you had to lie to you know get out of pe at the same time as be alone and read a book like everything had to be a lie whereas you don't feel that anymore you, you can kind of it's like a confidence to speak your truth and just be who you are and there's that is such a relief like like you said it's hard to keep track of lies and you know you know the the defining mark of the psychopath and most psychopaths come by it honestly they come from extreme abuse and the mark of the psychopath is they tell pathological lies they can't stop they're constantly putting on a fictional face because they don't have any authentic relationship to selfhood it's pretty tragic, and I mean that could have been your fate.
0: Sorry to say, but no, I mean, that's, describe... I mean that's why the therapist, you know, why I believe the therapist said I, 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 I would fit the diagnosis of the antisocial personality disorder because of not now. I mean not n- n- now now i I I don't feel empathy academically I know what empathy is and like I told my therapist, I don't know that I want to, I don't know that I want to work on the empathy piece. I'm happy with who I am you know good, better, and different is who I am. It's gotten me where I you know and it it it's not negative now, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, I don't want to be that person and I've worked really freaking hard to get away from that but if you were to, and he did, he had me fill out this questionnaire, and out of like sixty-two or sixty-three things, I scored like a fifty-nine. I mean, it was freaking almost textbook, I guess. But that was then. You know what I mean? When did you start going to therapy? Voluntarily. You don't mind me asking. Voluntarily, this earlier this year. Oh, okay. I've been sent to anger management three or two or three times. I was ordered to therapy when I was in Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay. So, and I, you know. So I've, I've been to therapy under the rest, I guess you would call it, but Did you find
1: that helpful?
0: Not really. I didn't take it seriously.
1: Okay. Interesting. You know, there's this woman, she's really, really smart. I think I can't remember if I told you, but she says there's two things, our deepest fears, and there's two things that drive us and drive our behavior. And one is annihilation. So you will fight to the death not to be annihilated. Right. Like that makes sense to all of us. But then the other one, which is where she really caught my interest. And I think it's a place where you're starting to explore different sort of aspects of yourself. So, our deepest fear like, if you have a highly abrasive boss who's just a huge bully and is carrying on and yelling and putting people down and me just back
0: ha- in the Navy days.
1: <laughs> so, okay. So, when you're an abrasive boss, It's different than a psychopath. An abrasive boss is totally different. And you can rehabilitate an abrasive boss. And this is the work that this woman does. She's PhD in social work. She's called the boss whisperer. Yeah, you remember
0: that. We talked about them last year. Laura
1: Crashaw. Okay, so here's what she said though. And we probably talked about this too, but it's worth repeating. Deepest fear is annihilation and abandonment. So our social relationships, even if you're not someone who was wired with a lot of empathy growing up or weren't born maybe with a ton of empathy and had to work on it, even that person has a deep brain wiring for social connection. Mm-hmm. In fact, the brain can't even develop properly if it doesn't have social connection, you
0: know? Well, I mean, like, look at you and I, right? This is a social connection. Yeah. What led me to my therapist was my fiance. And and I wasn't happy with how I was, you know, behaving the, the what I felt were snapping at, her, you know, is what ultimately drove me, you know, to my to the therapist because I want to be a better partner than I was for my wife you know and my therapist and I have talked about that too and and, you know it's I'm I don't want a whole bunch of relationships I'm very happy with my fiance my dog you know and then people you know I have you arm's length as it were I mean you're in a whole nother country but and I have people like that like I have standing calls with a couple other people you know once or twice a month and that's it scratches the itch for lack of a better term. I don't need to go out and, and have beers with the guys. Like, I just, I, I, I don't get it. Like when I do that, I'm like, what am I doing? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, the thing that's interesting about you though, and I mean, we all have our diverse ways of socially connecting. You actually use podcasts as a way to create community. Yeah. And And so you, and you like the community, I'm just guessing to be at arm's length because that's you're quite introverted. I'm very introverted as well. So I have no problem. I'm happy as I mean, if you're a researcher and writer, you're accustomed to spending all day long by yourself and you're you're quite happy with that. Lots of people can't survive it. Like people that never get their PhD dissertation done are usually my this is an unproven unresearched theory everybody high alert. They're usually extroverts and they cannot stand the isolation to do the deep dive that you have to do to write an original piece of work that's two or 300 pages long. They just can't hack it. And fair enough. Like everybody's so different, but you really do create community, you know, through the, the, your other podcast. And and now you're creating a new community kind of, kind of, it's almost like you're reestablishing your relationship to the Navy on your own terms, right? Tales from the slip. It's going to be something oh, I'm, that... I'm
0: not going to follow through with that. We did I did six interviews and it, it just didn't light my fire so I'm letting it die on the vine. I published it, I'm letting it go. I oh, just it, it's just not very I'm I'm not excited about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It feels no, like I I'm pulling teeth.
0: Yeah. It feels like I'm pulling my own teeth. Not, you know.
1: Yeah. Brain learns by making mistakes.
0: But this I enjoy and you know the ABC's disability planning I really enjoy because it scratches that curiosity itch, right? I mean, yeah but the abc's of disability one too is it's not just community
1: it's you actually helping people
0: yeah in my way
1: yeah well you can only do it in your way because you can't you can't like as soon as you start to try and do it in someone else's way it's usually doesn't work but i mean it's a great service that you're doing
0: for people thank you i mean I, i to your point about it not working like i went and got a degree an associate. So it wasn't like a, a big degree, but I went and, and I went to school and got an associate's degree in social work. And so I I wanted to see if I could make myself squishier. I can't. In fact, one of my professors, one of my professors, I don't remember what course it was, something with counseling or something. We took an empathy test. And, you know, she said, this is the lowest score I've ever seen
1: teaching. At the same time as what a breakthrough that you told the truth. You got to flip it, right? Like you authentically had the courage to say, you know what, this is how I'm constructed. Now I, and this is maybe why we have good conversations. I'm your complete and utter opposite. (laughs) I have way too much empathy. It's, It's a blessing and it's an absolute curse to have a ton of empathy. Like I drive my son crazy because he'll be showing me a video game and I can't watch it because it's so real for me. He's like, they're not even human. They're aliens, like stop. And I can't look at it. I can't watch the guys turning to dust and blowing away. Or I, I just become completely, it's so alive for me. Everybody's feelings, their facial expressions, their tone of voice, their gestures. I can like, I'm just so connected to it. It's ridiculous. I cry in movies. I cry when I read my own books oh my and I wrote them. That's how pathetic it is. Oh my God. So, yeah, I'm just the opposite of you. I couldn't, I couldn't hit, I couldn't slap someone across the face. I just don't have it in me. Yeah. So,
0: the idea of you pulling a knife on somebody and holding it to them is, yeah.
1: Never. Oh my God. I would just be like, oh my God. I'm so sorry. Did I scare you? Like, (laughs) just be, I would be the, I would never get in the door to the military. They would just, I would not pass the aptitude test. They'd
0: be like, no, you are a massive liability because we're all different, right? And, and you need that cancellation right like I you wouldn't I but I had my face surgery and I think you and I talked about this off off camera or off zoom when I had my face surgery I wanted a surgeon who had no empathy you know didn't have the empathy of oh my god am I hurting him I wanted somebody who had this more of the academic can I get it all in one swel- fell swoop you know and, and more of that academic kind of and she did great work I mean she you can't see scarring because she's such a master at her craft and that's what i want not somebody who's going to be squeamish and and kind of you know worried but by the same token my therapist i'm sure he's empathetic i I, he, I i can't imagine me sitting on giving sitting on the other side of therapy trying to run to work with somebody right like i do i do i'm a veteran liaison right now and i so i do outreach I go and honor veterans who are dying in hospice and and, and I've had people ask me how does how does that make you feel like I don't like a job I get paid to go honor a veteran I I help the family finds you know find resources if they need them and sometimes I get to hear some really cool stories the the dying part doesn't even register I mean that's why they're on hospice why wouldn't they die yeah
1: no and you know that's it but I mean yeah no and that's why like I could never be a doctor I would be the worst doctor in the world, the worst surgeon in the world, a disaster. You know, and that's why, I mean, career paths, we want to all choose. Like my son, for example, my older son, he's an incredible athlete, just amazing. He's like 6'4", and he just moves like water through chaos. And he works in the film industry. So not only is he's a camera operator, so he has to carry really heavy equipment and he has to move through hundreds of people going in all different directions. And the camera equipment is ridiculously expensive. You Can't drop it or bang it. And you have to get from A to B and you work from six in the morning till three in the morning, which requires like unbelievable athletic stamina. Endurance. Stamina. Yeah. Holy and God. so it's like a perfect fit for him. He, he will tell you, I could never work in an office. I could never sit at a desk. I would go crazy because his body, he's a kinesthetic learner. He's just
0: designed for movement. And that's where to tie it back to the listeners. It's okay to be who you are. Just be honest about it. And and more importantly, don't project your stuff on your kid. So true. And, and, you know, looking at the time, I don't think we need to get into another topic, but.
1: (laughs) Now that's a great place to end is just, I mean, it's hard. It's hard, especially with social media. And our kids are pulled in so many different directions. And if we can just keep telling them, look, you got to tap into your own authentic self, that's going to guide you. It's going to tell you what makes you curious. It's going to tell you what bores you. It's going to tell you what people you want to connect with and and the type of people you like to be around. Like just keep listening and you know, we'll yeah, see. And be
0: okay, and, and I would say be okay with being alone rather than surrounding yourself or even, even accepting people in your circle that you're not hundred percent with because eventually you know if if that's who you're around that's what you're going to get used to and then you'll start finding more of that i I would rather see somebody be alone because if if they're true if they're in my personal anecdotal if you're true to who you are you will attract people that you want to be around it's going to take longer maybe i mean i don't know i guess it would depend on what your environment was like if you're in small school very very smaller. if you're in a very rural environment it could be a little harder but after what i went through i don't think it's worth being inauthentic just to be ha- just to be in the air quotes happy and, and have somebody to hang out with get I a dog agree. no i totally agree but this was awesome as always jennifer thank you
1: thank you eric it was good to talk to you
0: thank you for listening to the bullied brain as a reminder neither Jennifer nor I are licensed clinical physicians, psychologists, or mental health professionals. Everything we are talking about during this podcast is anecdotal as it relates to me, Eric Jorgensen. If you are looking for help or you would like to seek answers to your own questions, we encourage you to seek out a mental health professional in your area. Please do not try to do or overcome any trauma on your own. Thanks for listening.